Chapter 22 Thou Art the Thing Itself And now it was Sunday. Lamia and I alone again after a shining breakfast plated with exuberant flavors. Rose's contagious felicity spiraled through the house, banishing night visions and burgeoning dread. Until they set off on their adventures, and I had no choice but to fight back nausea, lay a course, and secure the ship. Arm the rifles at every porthole. Swab clean the deck of old blood. Fly my colors boldly into the seas of scoff and sloth. If my mission proved victorious, they would clamber aboard and dance the jolly hornpipe in celebration with me. Among the faculty at the school, I had one friend, Terry, the physics teacher, with whom I could talk openly. She was a veteran with a rich storehouse of tales from the front lines whose many years had bladed her wit and refined her perspective. I admired her steady hand, loving nature, imperturbable tolerance of all manner of adolescent shenanigans. In Terry's windowless matchbox office, we often lunched together or rehashed the day at its end. It was she with whom I shared my triumphs, bewailed my defeats, she whose advice I sought and took. After the grisly days of flail and failure, as I came to call them, she tried to console me with an analogy of teachers to parents. We are in loco parentis, emphasis on loco, for taking on this massive extra unpaid job. When children feel unsafe in the classroom or at home, they are generally very docile and obedient around outsiders, Terry explained, because they can't risk the consequences of acting up. When they feel at ease, safe, then they can be little hellions to test the limits of their elders' patience. Even if they exceed those bounds and provoke your anger, they trust that nothing awful will come of it because you love them, that your punishment will be in keeping with their transgressions and your forgiveness is assured. So I should laud myself for creating an environment where students know they are safe and cherished. It was bullshit in my case but I needed to hear this kind interpretation, this exonerating fairy tale. The truth was that they hated me and had made vengeful use of the observers to humiliate me. While I was overpraising fourth period to win their allegiance during the observations, building up my relationship to our venerable guests, they were plotting their resistance. Terry invited me out for a beer, first time, a welcome delay from facing myself head on. The decision that lay before me, as I saw it, was major reclamation along the lines Justine had counseled, or resignation. The days of flail and failure began on a resplendent autumn morning, Tuesday. Unseasonably warm, ruffle of wind shimmering the aspen leaves, whose gold illumined the cerulean sky. An auspicious salutation from the earth. I walked determinedly tall into the classroom strapped first and third to their seats with horrendous threats, and delivered a gripping read of Omelas, laying particular emphasis on Druze, the magical substance that keeps the townspeople mellow. Chastened by my draconian measures last week, and yesterday's in-class essay, and the need, after all, to get decent grades first semester of senior year, the kids were unusually cooperative, nicely druzed out, as I thought to myself. They even raised a couple of intelligent questions during the five minutes before class ended. 
when I promised them a field trip tomorrow, saving, till then, the joke about it being literally a trip to the field, they left nearly buoyant. An extra gift, third was released two minutes early so I could welcome my guests, who saw the happy campers departing, several hand-slapping me on the way out. Looking good, bug. Fourth is gonna soar. Sour. One letter off and a terrible inversion of my expectations. Of course, I wasn't able to terrify them with grave consequences at the start of class, which might have been the key to my success in the earlier periods. Instead, I praised and cooed, introducing them as the finest and fairest in the land, to which they responded with uncharacteristic apathy, despite which I graced them with a charitable smile before launching into Omelas. The opening paragraph of my reading stunned them. I hit the bass notes of wizardry the fluted lilt of seduction. By this time, I had the story partly memorized and could look up to underscore a dramatic phrase. Initially, their eyes met mine. My gaze held theirs. But a couple of pages in, the drumming commenced, lightly at first, then insistently. Aster, the wannabe rock star drummer who improvised his beats on the desktop, no punishment had won his silence when he was hungry. I had even allowed him to bring a snack to class, a concession the others resented but understood. He'd showed up with it the next day, but not the day after, because, he explained, he'd gotten hungry in second period and eaten it then. I prescribed two snacks, which he tried once successfully before forgetting. My fallback was to have him sit with our ancient, oversized encyclopedia weighing down his arms. In front of the visitors, I couldn't bring myself to expose this bizarre tactic, sought instead to gag him with my eyes, and finally with a gentle reprimand whose ominous undertones were lost on him. Score one for Aster in the disruption category. Others were more subtle, making their points in the annoyance and disrespect arenas. I caught Siobhan texting, Coulter snoozing, Bella painting her nails, Marley eating, and Victor made a ten-minute foray to the bathroom. In every case, I had to choose to stop the reading and focus on the infraction, deliver severe threats as in the other classes, or ignore them as if these were irrelevant teenage behaviors, to be expected and disregarded. That seemed easiest under the circumstances. However, as soon as they realized they could get away with pretty much anything because of the observers, My merely bad fourth-period class redoubled their efforts at distraction, adding sidebar whisperings and giggles to their array of wrongdoings. I raised my voice, walked among them, a futile approach that only disempowered me further. Carpe diem, my pretties, but oh, are you going to get it when we're alone again? There was no time for questions at the end, no friendly laughter as they departed, no hand slaps a vengeful gleam of triumph in the eyes that grazed mine. The more I'd buttered them up, the more freedom they'd known they had, and they had abused it mightily. If fourth was, generously put, a crushing disappointment, lunch thereafter redefined awkwardness. My favorite diner was closed for repairs, so we had to eat at a sleazy, crowded fast food place that myriad students frequented. To save me from humiliation during this ordeal, we talked about things other than the class. They asked about my work on the diversity committee, 
what I thought of the school's principal, the holiday schedule, topics as bland and uninteresting as the food. Driving back to school, a too-visible cloak of doom hung over me, and I had to fight my self-loathing to step back into the ring. Opening the classroom door, my visitors trailing, I persuaded my heart that the A-peers would restore its faith in me. Slipped into my teacher guise and beamed at them, the suave confidence man. Introduced my guests, whom they welcomed with genuine courtesy and pleasure. We were deep into Act 3, as I'd planned, about to begin Scene 4, which held Lear's eye-opened speech about the poor, naked wretches he has taken too little care of followed by the imagined trial of his daughters. Juicy, the stuff of AP guts and glory. They rose to their places on our classroom stage without needing to be asked. Kent, played heart-rendingly by Beatrice, had spoken her first line to Lear when the door swung wide and a ridiculously handsome young stud trod in. Cyril Raj, he announced. I'm new. Curly dark hair and chiseled features, intensely blue eyes set in unblemished olive skin, velvet over stone, granite over bone. Athletic frame, wide-mouthed smile, hard to read. A sight that silenced. Number 13 in AP, the only boy. He would change everything. Create a whole new dynamic, alter the energy, destroy the intimacy of a group of brilliant girls with a scarred teacher who prompted no erotic fantasies. These thoughts whipped through me all in the brief span during which we sized one another up. Then he strode over and handed me his schedule with admission to this class. Cyril, nice to have you join us. My voice constricted, like that of a man who's kicked away the chair. You can call me Raj. Everybody does. So, what were you in the middle of? Sorry to interrupt. His voice sonorous. As noted, a sight that silenced. My gregarious wunderkinder had lost the power of speech. What they were in the middle of was the staring at Raj, lustfully. King Lear. One of my favorites. Saw an awesome production last summer at the Globe. Rose jumped in. We saw that one, too. It was spectacular. We're at the start of Act 3, Scene 4. Grab a book off the back shelf and have a seat, I told the kid, fighting to regain my authority. Beatrice, go ahead. She did, but flat. Small. Abandoning the spirited zeal she'd read with before. The next line went to Irene, my leer a drama star who read Shakespeare as fluently as if it were her first language. She, the class anchor and inspiration during this enactment, suddenly balked. I've been reading a lot. Why don't we let Raj play Lear? He's seen it performed, and it would be fun to hear someone new take over. Yeah, echoed Beatrice, enthused afresh. I'd be happy to, though I'm sure I won't be as good as you've been. A chivalrous fellow, this king of handsome. He stood up, gliding toward Irene's place on our classroom stage. Two options lay before me, the wise and the foolish. Wise would have been to go with the flow, trust the girls, 
climb aboard the Raj bandwagon. Foolish, which I chose, was to resist and impose my own will. Let's give Raj a chance to get his bearings before plunging in. Show him how it's been going. Their faces closed like a curtain between us. I thought you said we'd change Lears at this point anyway. Janie was supposed to take over because Cordelia doesn't come back in for quite a while. But I love Cordelia, Janie protested, and I don't feel very well today. I think I might be getting sick, so I'd rather just watch. I could direct, Raj offered unhelpfully. My job. I wasn't about to have him show me up in that role. Let's take a vote. From Vivienne. Until that moment, my sidekick, who staunchly defended every move I made. No need to vote, of course. Go straight to the concession speech. Looks like we've got a new leer, I nodded toward Raj. He grinned. Checkmate. My girls dissolved in mental swoons. Predictably arresting. A gifted thespian, fearless in his portrayal of the mad old king. I found myself unable to stop him to analyze key moments and speeches as I'd previously done. Studley had claimed the room and all in it. What had once been my kingdom became his realm, which I would have to armor myself to regain. My bevy of AP noblewomen were his. Even Mamia, Rose, and Justine's faces were alight with the pleasure of watching this delectable, unselfconscious hunk perform. Pathetic though it was, I looked forward to his death at the end of Act 5. Thanks, he said, departing the class, and this time I detected an arch in his tone. I hope we're going to go back into some of the more important speeches in those scenes. Seems worth doing. It does, doesn't it? I shot back, straining to arc my hauteur above his. He paused at the headshot collage of authors and students. Nice flicking his ultra-blue eyes over them. Where's Charlie Baudelaire? And with a shrug, wandered out the door, the girls I'd thought were waiting to chat with me, trailing him like maenads. How fortunate that this young man showed up, Alex, Rose gushed as I attempted to escort my visitors away against the influx of seventh period, which I definitely didn't want them observing. Sensing my urgency, Justine hurried out, but Mamia lingered. I'll see you at home. I scooted her into the hall with a quick pat on the shoulder. We forgot Baudelaire, sincerely abashed. So many more writers and poets than we have room for. But I knew she would find a portrait of him to add to the board, and I'd have to decline, not really for lack of space, but because there was no chance in hell I'd let Studley McHandsome win another round. If there had been a way to avoid going home, I would have found it that afternoon. Wished I could fly again with Yates far beyond the storm of my defeats. Instead, dawdling in the cramped English office, laying out my battle plan for tomorrow, scanning online critiques of Lear for new insights, questions, angles to bring to the discussion, and bracing myself with a crust of feigned assurance for the review of the observed day that awaited me when I crossed the threshold of Mamiya's abode, which these ruminations put off till near sundown. Luckily, the three women were deep into a bottle of Merlot when I breezed into the kitchen. Something smells delicious, 
a reliably flattering opener I'd learned in high school when my plummeting grades required a diversionary tactic. Roast lamb with potatoes, peas, and carrots, Mamia enthused. These dear women are culinary artists. Standard British fare, Justine smiled. Not much artistry involved, but good nonetheless. Can I pour you a glass of wine? I'll stick with beer, thanks, grabbing one from the fridge. You must be exhausted, sweetheart. I can't imagine how you teach five classes a day. Mamia's nightly expression of concern, which I nightly shrugged off, usually followed by a hug and a retreat to my quarters. You do have your hands full, nodded Justine. She shook her head. Being there today made me remember why I decided to pursue my doctorate. Simply didn't have the stamina, or courage, or whatever it takes, that my parents did, and you do. The volcanic energy of adolescence overwhelmed me. I was just your age when you were a senior in my class, Alex, so I should have been up to it, but... She drained her glass, refilled it. Here's to you. We toasted, Justine and Mamia cheering, Rose clinking my beer half-heartedly. She had a lot to say, but was waiting, crafty Rose, for the right moment to pounce. I warned myself not to be alone with her, but knew she would corner me in some impenetrable byway and give me, well, face it, my due comeuppance. At dinner, Justine turned the conversation from the dismal teaching they'd observed to the content of the classes. Lear offered perennial terrain for the literary explorer, and I tried out my ideas on them. For instance, that in a world of disguises, Edgar as Tom, Kent as Caius, Lear learns to see through to the real man. Thou art the thing itself. Unaccommodated man is no more but such a poor, bare, forked animal as thou art. Stripping down, he uncovers, literally and metaphorically, the truth about how and who man is. I would come back to this theme when we read Lear's speech about through tattered clothes small vices do appear. And against the backdrop of those discussions, let them respond to Lear's assertion in Act 5 that he is every inch a king. This would be just one through line to pursue, but it seemed a fitting one given the theme of social justice that anchored my AP course. As well as the regulars, Justine pointed out, Le Guin's Omelas story is right in line with the social justice theme. I love your reading choices, added warmly. What a mensch my former, and still, teacher was. It occurred to me that I could invite her to guest teach tomorrow, but she must have seen the thought spring Athena-like from my mind because she put her hand on my arm, saying, It's such a treat to simply observe, not be in charge, Alex. Thank you for granting me this privilege. One more day. I wasn't clear on their plans after tomorrow, but what did it matter as long as they didn't involve sitting in on my classes? They'd be back in Berlin soon enough. We could stay in touch periodically. Mamia and I might visit them in several years when we could laugh about what a lousy teacher I'd been and everything could go back to normal between us. Keep it together tomorrow, Bug. Leap and bound, but trash those naive expectations of success. By the time fourth period rolled in, the students all knew that the mysterious field trip meant walking out to the field where they played soccer and ran laps. Its green charm was dimmed by schists of lost games, broken bones, 
coaches' yells. We gathered under the lone spreading tree that predated the field, and I laid out the activity, which the students likewise already knew, and not only, they had prepared a strategy to undermine it. No one would walk away, and their reasons for staying painted a detestable picture of the contemporary teenage outlook. I had, however, promised not to doubt their motives when they shared them, but to accept them as valid and truthful. Hard to do, knowing they were lying to show the guests their worst side and blame its hideous aspect on what had been taught by me. Vicious little bastards, they, now fallen in my estimation from bad to ugly. But given their current vile state of mind, I could argue merely a few literary points with them, not the critical moral ones. Halfway through this sham class, Peterson Hathaway stumbled into our cursed circle under the tree. His eyes were bloodshot, hair and clothes rumpled. He stank of unwashed teeth and skin, old sweat and something curdled. I couldn't quite make out what drug would have leached from his cells with that foul odor. The venom I'd suppressed shot hissing from my fangs. Slippery Pete! Man with no timepiece wanders in. How's the weed or whatevs you're smoking, cooking, snorting, shooting, ingesting these days? Long night, Petey Pie. Shame school had to get in the way of your party. But no worries, you can do college ripped. I spat all this out while he shuffled over to me with his admit slip from the front office. I glanced at it. Anyone could get one of those with a parental note. Usually faked, rarely checked. This one said family emergency, which was almost as common as feeling sick. The voracious homework-eating puppy had gone out with the 20th century, though pets still died at a freaky rate on test days. My mother's appendix burst. I was in the hospital with her and my dad all night. She had emergency surgery. It was touch and go. She's still in the ICU. I just left. Probably shouldn't have come. I'm pretty wiped out but I didn't want to go home. Sassy, savvy Mr. Man shot down. His formerly passive-aggressive students now united in open rebellion. Most of them didn't care much for Petey, but my offensive attack had made him a hero to be defended, his cause theirs, and they rose up against me in churlish contempt. Forget Omelas. Here's the suffering kid none will walk away from, but all will walk away with. They smothered him in condolences and offers of help. Discussion turned to appendixes and mothers, stories of other family illnesses and ways they'd coped with them, an array of warnings and remedies. Everyone, it seemed, had dealt with an emergency. Everyone understood what he was going through. Slippery Pete basked in the sympathy. The class, such as it raggedly was, ended. I was the one they shunned without a backward glance, despite my attempts at rectifying my ugly accusations. If lunch was awkward yesterday, today it was just plain dismal. Rose still held her tongue, but her eyes were dark fire. When she trapped me alone, as I knew even more surely now she would, she'd fry me. I was already wallowing in guilt though I couldn't yet say out loud what a rotten failure of a teacher I'd been. Couldn't yet dissect the scene we'd just lived and analyze how and where I'd gone wrong and what I should or could have done 
why they hated me, and whether it was my self-loathing that provoked their hatred. Lots of territory to excavate, and at that point I was too shaken to start digging. Unlike Pete, I wanted to go home, quit my job, and go home. Then get out of town and disappear. Instead, I hid my shame and barreled into AP. An excellent discussion of Lear might resurrect my withered confidence. I had to best Studley McCansom in plumbing the depths of Act 3, Scene 4, and win back my devotees. That was paramount. My opening question about whether unaccommodated man is no more than such a poor, bare animal would get the class going and I had a dynamite rejoinder to their likely agreement that, yes, he is no more than this. Revved myself up again to press onward. He walked in splendor through the door, surrounded by his entourage, all of whom vied animatedly for his favor. Irene plastered me with a baleful look, which made it clear that, of course, everyone knew about the incident with Slippery Pete. I had been repeatedly amazed by how quickly tales tattled across the school, while homework assignments intended to be shared with missing students grew cement feet. No cover for me, though I would proceed as if untouched by that petty disgrace. Dove in, my voice tolling Lear's indictment of man. Vivienne's lips parted, and she drew a breath, ready to assent, as I figured she, they all, would thereby launching my follow-up about the nature of self-consciousness and why an animal would require it. But she exhaled without speaking, cocking her head at McStudley, deferring with that glance to him. He smiled, waited courteously to see what others might say, but they sat mute, counting on Handsome to deliver an unassailable verdict. I felt the bile of an ill-digested burrito in my throat. Vivienne, what are you thinking? She shrugged. I don't know. Liar. So much for pinning her to her unspoken response. I moved on to Beatrice, who always had an opinion and never hesitated to defend it. Beatrice? Lear's a mad old man in a rainstorm. How can we assess anything he says? Playing a game she knew not to. I was scrambling to find an inoffensive way to point that out and challenge her to think about the question itself when Stud spoke up. Well, of course, the question is not really about Lear's sanity, but about his discovery of the true nature of man and society when he himself is stripped of its trappings. And whether he's saner at this juncture than he was as a ruler in the opening scene is one of the big issues of the play. Reason in madness, Edgar calls it later, which I'm inclined to agree with. Gotcha. Stepped on my lines, S. McH. did. But as it was in a noble cause, I forgave him. Well said, bestowing my approval on his lean frame. Now, Jocelyn, what are your thoughts about the original question, as I wrote it on the board? She was a shy one, still not convinced she belonged in AP, doubting the validity of any position she held. I generally had to push her though until yesterday it had seemed that less was at stake. Sitting next to Mick H., she lowered her head, shaking it. No chance she'd venture an opinion. He, cloaked as the gallant Senor Empathy, sped to her rescue. 
It's pretty clear that man must be more than an animal to be able to ask such a question. The fact that we are conscious of ourselves as entities separate from one another and from nature, that we can think about ourselves, is indicative of our status as more than an animal. Though that Lear could believe we aren't raises the dramatic issue of whether he is conscious of himself at this point. Blah, blah, blah. Madness clouded my reason. I couldn't think, couldn't speak, couldn't move, couldn't listen to the usurper of my domain spout my words any longer. Stood watching his expressive face move, watching every girl in the class watching him. Gazing with unabashed adoration upon him, I mean. Fury paralyzed me. He had stolen not only my girls, but also my ideas and my position. Who was I now, anyway? An interloper who occupied the empty space at the front of the classroom? How was I here? What difference did my presence make? Did they even see me anymore, or just a superfluity in the room that had ceased to matter? He had devoured my authority and purpose, my will, which to regain I had to get him out of my sight, out of my class, out of my life. Murder crept into my imaginings, a glorious resolution to this injustice, that I, a conscience-made coward, would not act but devoutly wish on. Tuned back in when my nemesis restored me to the present with a bullseye, his to mine. Something about him wanting to retrace ground we'd covered before his eminence had graced our lives, a speech near the start of Act Three. It ties into whether Lear has any sense of who he is once he's been thrown out of the kingdom. The speech when he commands the gods of the storm to discover their enemies. A great way of telling them to expose the true demons. But here, it's hard to be sure if Lear is including himself among the wicked. Is he talking to or of himself when he says, Tremble, thou wretch, thou being the familiar form of you, that hast within thee undivulged crimes, unwhipped of justice. Hide thee, thou bloody hand, thou perjured, and thou similar of virtue that art incestuous. He paused for maximum effect. If he is, then he is confessing that he falsified his own virtue, and that in fact he was incestuous, committed incest. Waited for the heir to flee the room. That might help explain why the two older daughters have no compassion for him. At least it casts them in a different light. I had passed over that reference because I thought that it was misread that too much was read into it. Jane Smiley, with her Thousand Acres tome, had pretty well scraped the bottom of that pan. Since no one else suggested any misbegotten liaisons between him and his offspring, and since he would presumably have been pushing seventy when they were pubescent, I considered that whole line of inquiry a titillating distraction, and had rolled on past it. Now I saw in the girls' faces the assumption that I'd missed this vital theme. What I should have done is explain to them what I just did to you. What I did instead was laugh. A wind of disapproval rushed back into the room, humming from twelve throats. The storm had broken. My once faithful Vivienne rose on its torrent to expel me from the kingdom. It makes sense of everything that's happened so far. The violence, the cold relations between them, the vengeance. The evidence in the text is ample, she insisted. We could go back now and find all the clues easily. A pause, her eyes hard. I can't believe we missed that line. 
How sharper than a serpent's tooth it is to have a thankless student. Vivienne of the red-gold tresses and green orbs, on whom I'd lavished hours of care. Those college essays I'd revised with her, making them soar high enough to fulfill her Ivy League dreams. The early morning conferences to hone her understanding of difficult passages in our texts. The SAT practice tests. But what a sublime couple they made. She as fair as he was dark, and both glistening with youthful ardor. Look, the thing is that regardless of whether he's speaking of himself or to multitudes of sinners, the issue is power. That's one of the central themes of the play. Incest is about one person overpowering another through sexual force. It's just one form of subjugation. We've seen here the power of rule, of truth and lies, of family bonds, of loyalty and betrayal, hate and love, of rights and wrongs, youth and age, and not just in Lear's situation, but Gloucester's too. It's power that's at stake, and that's what you need to consider rather than whether Lear committed incest. I willed my mouth to shape itself into a smile, disfigured though it might be by ire. You're downplaying the importance of incest, Vivienne giving no quarter. It colors their personal relationship, and as you said earlier, Lear doesn't seem to be able to keep the private and public realm separate, who he is as a father and who he is as a king. Maybe he's been raping the whole country. Maybe Kent and Cordelia have, like, Stockholm Syndrome and love their abuser. So far out on a weak limb that she was sure to fall, my smile grew genuinely condescending. Poor baby. Let Prince Charming rescue her if he wanted to, but he opted instead to watch the bow break. The others had come around now, recognizing, which they inevitably had to, my superior authority. Crepuscular rays, I imagined, fanned out behind me as the storm blew off across the plains. Still the man. Well, okay, that might be going too far, she continued, hanging on to the twig. But still, if Lear raped his daughters, at least the older two, who could have protected their little sister because that happens, like sacrificial victims to keep him off the baby girl, it's so much easier to understand why they would throw him out into the storm to die. And I mean, he did the same to Cordelia, in effect, and then forced them to take care of him. He's a monster, really. The incest thing just makes everything make sense. Raj stretched, extending himself fore and aft in a leisurely fashion. My stomach tensed. But he said nothing, merely turning to Vivienne, letting his eyes caress her face, his manifest support urging her on. You know, I can see how it would for you, Viv, being an incest survivor yourself. Flash crash boom. The room went dark except for Vivienne's face, which was a neon scarlet, lashing me. Mr. Man, rasped, quivering. I told you that in confidence. How dare you? And she ran for the door, gusting tears. Three girls rose to follow, and McStudley mobilized to go after them then torsoed around to face me. As flies to wanton boys, sneered, turning to the class. Best be wary of what you tell the man. I suspected as much, only one day under his rule, but never thought he'd go so low as to exert his power to mutilate us. 
He loves to ferret out our secrets, Irene emboldened through the accusation at the witnesses, my friends and mother. The sexier the better. I know. When I told him about Marina sleeping with Duke, while his girlfriend was like taking a bath in the next room, he frenzied, made me tell all the gory details. Thanks for sharing, Beatrice, who everyone pretty much knew was the scrub-a-dub in the tub. And Jocelyn chimed in. Why not? That's how he gets his kicks, through our lives. It's kind of an emotional rape. Audible gasps. Yep, over the top and out of line, that. And she realized it, quickly softened, no doubt conscious of hanging on the cusp of an A-, minus, with six weeks of good behavior left to go. But that's also how he gets such great writing out of us. We open a vein for him, and the stuff that comes out is our true inner selves. I mean, he's the best writing teacher I've ever had. Whether she meant that last part or not, she was right. The bell rang, merciful shriek, postponing the denouement till tomorrow, granting us all time to recover, gather ourselves, and find a safe path toward forgiveness to travel together. I would arrange a meet with S. McH get him on board or overboard. It would all be so much easier once we were free of the committee's scrutiny. Drove home in shock, straight to my room, not ready to talk, not able to eat, not willing to remember. Just sprawled on the bed, eyes shut, one cat on my chest and the other curled against my underarm. Heard the text come in, but didn't pull out my phone to check it. Neither slept nor moved, a state of torpor from which I could not rouse myself while night crept into the room and blurred all but memory. At some point I must have liberated myself from even that scourge and gone to sleep. I did not want to reawaken, or if, then only to an utterly changed world. Nothing would dare to be the same. The text was from Rose and when I came to with a start at the insistence of my 5 a.m. alarm, its message got my blood churning. Jay and I will be with Catherine the next two days, evaluating the situation. We are taking you to Trove for the weekend. Not a chance I'd be going with them. The thought was even less appealing than heading back into the classroom. And of course, the only thing in the world that had changed was my hunger, gone from nil to ravenous. Go in straight, I directed myself. Be nice. Smooth things over like it was no big deal. Yesterday's news. Turn Slippery Pete into Peter the Great, a promotion that would more than satisfy him. The kids would be over him anyway. He'd been a designated weirdo since ninth grade, so I'd been told, and would, after his unexpected canonization, return to that lowly status. Checkmark. I assigned the fourth period their second in-class essay of the week, this one an analysis of the primary theme of Omelas, its relevance to our society, and in relation to that analogous state, the motives for their actions in refusing to walk away. It was intentionally an oversized task for 45 minutes, and as I collected the essays, I informed them that these were drafts I would review before they rewrote them for a final grade. This strategy, devised on the spot, was far more punitive for their misbehavior and preventative of any future rebellion than a lecture would have been, in part because it required them to think, and in larger part because the other sections, 
which had been astonishingly well-behaved, did not have to write the essay. The ultimate rub was that they couldn't whine about it because they knew the reason for this extra work and didn't want to hear me lay it on them. Trifecta. AP, I feared, would be tougher, and I had an in-class prepared for them, too, on whether Lear is a man more sinned against than sinning, as he claims. But I didn't need to use it yet, because they met me in a subdued frame of mind, clearly anxious to avoid any more fireworks. Vivienne would not look at me, but she also chose to sit elsewhere in the room, left McHandsome to fend for himself, which was easy for him as he once again read Lear. We moved on. I realized that the fault lines of indignation and distrust still brood beneath the surface, likely to cause another eruption at some point. I owed it to Viv to straighten things out with her, apologize, reassure her of my fidelity, try to justify my betrayal on the grounds that she had stubbornly shifted from literary analysis to psychoanalysis, which she knew was not valid. Or something like that. The right words would come to me. At the end of the day, I texted Rose back. Can't make the weekend trip. Thanks, though. Have fun. It took her less than 30 seconds to reply, It's not optional, Bug. Pack an overnight. Be ready at 7 on Saturday. Jesus, who did she think she was? My fingers were poised to send an acid rejoinder about poor working stiffs with papers to grade and prep to do, but I didn't want to go there. Easier in the end, just to be sick this weekend. A lesson I'd learned from my kids. But Friday night, when they got back from Vista Grande, Rose intercepted me. As I was about to text my apologies for a sudden onset of the dreaded crud, she, telepathing my intent, called. Alex, I understand your reluctance to go with us, but please spare me some transparent excuse. This trip is not meant to be a rare and exquisite form of torture for you. Rather, I would like your assistance as one who knows Trove, which I do not. Okay, there's a bend in the river I was not anticipating. The truth is, it had been my plan to keep this news a surprise, to tell you along the way. However, I don't want to drag you down there in a foul humor too irate to be decent company. Rose, the soul of tact. Are you already in bed? Half asleep, I snore-yawned. Well, wake up, please. Here's the story I meant to tell you en route. You'll see why it concerns you. She drew a long breath, gathering her tail. I lay back on the bed, my hand-stroking tiger. Rose was a storyteller, not one to cut to the chase. Centuries ago, when Catherine was a dewy-eyed bride looking to spread herself across the Southwest, she pried loose some Hampton family trust funds to buy property in far too many idyllic locales. A ranch along the Pecos River that she leased to a wealthy wannabe cowboy for a while, then sold at an enormous profit. An old adobe near O'Keefe's home in Abiquiu, used for mental health seminars and retreats. A ski lodge in Aspen and, oh, a variety of other prime spots, including a spacious cabin on a picturesque hillside near Trove. She paused, waiting for a reaction I inheld. A spacious cabin in Trove, the kind of home I had once so ached to own. 
managers looked after all these properties, keeping them tip-top for her rare visits with Lou. My father was especially fond of the Trove cabin, whose proximity to wilderness nourished his soul, and whose exquisite views, he told me, were a dream vision of pristine beauty. Oh yes, I know. When my parents divorced, Lou could easily have claimed half of Catherine's holdings, New Mexico being a community property state, but the dear man was too proud and modest both to take his due. He asked simply for the Trove cabin, which she quickly deeded to him before he came to his senses and scrabbled for more of their estate, she having been a fool not to protect it with a prenup. He walked away from the house he'd built on the land he'd bought with nothing else, made a clean start and a successful comeback, business-wise. As a man, he limped along, his spirit broken, for some twenty years until he met Heather in Edinburgh. May the next twenty restore his joy and love. And now I come to the part that especially concerns you, Alex. Since Lou plans to stay in Scotland with his new family, at most vacation in the Southwest, he gave me the Trove cabin as a wedding gift, did so in truth gladly, since he's had to pay for its upkeep. I need to go there to register the deed in my name and inspect the place, which has been empty for too many years. I want you to rent it from me next summer for a very nominal fee. You were so happy in Trove, even with all the complications that arose. You should have another chance at living there, if just for a season, in a place of your own. Maybe your dear mother will want to go with you. In any case, that's why you need to come with us tomorrow, to see the place and decide whether you'd like it for the summer. When I did not speak, she added, strategically, if you're not interested, I may sell it. Pause. Alex? I lay silent, my hand at rest on Tiger's back, not because I knew better than to interrupt her outpouring, but because I had nothing to say. A jumble of emotions wrenched my stomach. After sealing off the yearn and memory, here was Trove again, ripping through the fabric. Are you asleep, Alex? She wouldn't yield, I knew that, but neither would I. Tag along with them, look over the cabin, and then, after seeming to give it careful thought, say no to her summer place. I'm coming up to your room. Thrust enough air across my unwilling vocal cords to tell her, Okay, yes, see you in the morning.